0: Get the emails. Jay Collins Memorial Service is at 11 o'clock on Saturday, and then uh, Chafer Seminary fall registration begins uh, Monday, and if you're a member of West Houston Bible Church, you can take up to two courses a semester tuition free. You just have to pay the registration fee. but... It's free until August 7th, so if you're an early bird, then you can uh, get that worm, but of course, the early worm gets eaten. You always have to remember that. And then the uh, pre-trib conference is coming up. That will be December 5 through 7, and that will be in Dallas, and we have brochures out on the back. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure that we're walking by the Spirit, that we're in right relationship with the Lord, and uh, that will enable us to make our time together spiritually profitable for eternity. So let's bow our heads together, and I will pray after a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your grace that you have provided a perfect salvation for us and a way to recover from sin when we do sin, that we can just uh, confess it to you, admit it, acknowledge it instantly. We're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Father, we pray for our time in your word that it might encourage us, strengthen us, that we may get some of our questions answered. And that we might come to understand the great motivational factor in being an overcomer. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles with me, first of all. First of all, I need to have my notes out. And I'm afraid I did what I may have done. What I'm afraid I did, oh well. I don't need them. Okay, so first thing we're going to do is review a little bit of where we are. We are studying on what the Bible teaches about the overcomer. Tonight we'll get to Tree of Life in Revelation uh, 2.7. And we got started in this because we're in Philippians, but this is a topical study, a doctrinal study where we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the day of Christ and why that is important. And Paul refers to it twice as he opens this epistle in his prayer, so that focuses our attention on the future and that we are to live today with the future in mind. We're to live today understanding that we are going to be evaluated, that grace means that we are saved. Grace means that God has seen to the uh, payment for our sins, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to be the same in the future for every believer. We're all going to go to heaven. We're all going to have resurrection bodies. We are all going to have uh, uh, happiness and joy beyond anything that we can imagine. But there will be distinctions in heaven, and part of that has to do with what is taught about the overcomer. So the day of Christ is a term that refers to uh, a sort of a tandem events that occur in history one after the other first the rapture of the church when all uh, those who are dead in Christ will be caught up together to be with him in the clouds and then we who are alive and remain uh, shall be caught up together with him it will be instantaneously in the wink of an eye which is about 165th of a second and that is immediately followed by the judgment seat of Christ Now, we started with this verse, and I think this is an important verse for a number of reasons, and the more I've rehearsed this in my mind, one of the things that I think I haven't brought out quite in this way, you're going to say, oh, well, it sounds the same, but no, it's a little different. There's a little word there in the middle, and that's this word, as. I think that's extremely important. Jesus says to him who overcomes, that's introducing the word for overcomer, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as. So there's a comparison here. So when you have a comparison, you have... Uh, two things that are similar that are being uh, compared to one another. If they are not similar, you really can't, can't compare them. There's no basis for the analogy. So the analogy is that Jesus overcame something. As a result of his overcoming he is given a reward a rulership and judgment ability when then that's what's indicated by the fact that he sits down with his father on his father's throne not on his throne yet that's what's coming so he overcomes something the text doesn't say but it must be the same kind of thing for the believer when it says uh, to him who overcomes, the analogy and the comparison falls apart is the overcoming of the believer isn't the same kind of thing as Christ's overcoming. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. So that, those are the terms of the comparison. What did Christ overcome? Well, a lot there are a lot of ways that we could possibly answer that question, but the scripture only uses that verb with reference to one thing, doesn't say he overcame sin, doesn't say he overcame uh, you know the, the um, uh, Romans or the Pharisees. It says he overcame the world in John 1633. And so for the analogy to work, what the believer is overcoming must be the same thing, overcoming the world. And that's what we saw as part of our, uh, our study in 1 John, also overcoming the devil. So those are that, that's really a critical passage right there. And the two questions I've pointed, uh, and the things that I've pointed out in the past is that there's this level of disagreement among believers. I would argue that nearly everyone who takes a strong Calvinist view of perseverance, that if you are a true believer, you will persevere in obedience to the end. You'll have periods of carnality, periods of disobedience, but you will never fall away for, for, for long or for good or for evil to make it work. You'll you will, uh, But you will always return. That's the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Now, Lewis Berry Chafer had a perseverance of the saints, but he basically reduced it to eternal security. He doesn't have a strict Synod of Dort, which is where the five points of Calvinism were developed. He doesn't have a strict Dortian view of perseverance. He's a little different. That's why some people will say he's really a three and a half point Calvinist because he doesn't hold to limited atonement, and he only holds to about half of perseverance. So, but I'm not going to count points. So that's what we're talking about, trying to understand this because there are some believers, even in the in the free grace camp, dispensationalist camp, who will say that all believers are overcomers and all, and and therefore. All believers get the same package of goodies at the end. But what we see is that in in first um, Corinthians three, at the judgment seat of Christ, there are those who are rewarded and those who have no rewards. You have two categories there. Well, two questions come up have come up. One is, regarding a statement I have made about first john five five that this does not, this is not the salvific, proposition, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the question is, why isn't 1 John 5, 5 talking about the content of the gospel in light of John twenty thirty one That these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Why isn't son, believing Jesus is the Son of God a salvific proposition in John 1 John 5, 5? And the second is, even though the word overcomer isn't used in 1 Corinthians nine twenty four to 27, isn't it describing the concept? And I think it is, and so I just want to go over both of these questions and the answer. So, why isn't 1 John 5, 5 talking about the content of the gospel when it talks about uh, believing that Jesus is the Son of God? In 1 John 5, 5 we read, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, on its surface, in the English translation, it looks like believing that Jesus is the Son of God fits with what John says in John twenty thirty one, And I have highlighted this and put it in context with the previous verse, which reads... Where John is coming to the end of his gospel. He's given a summary and he says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Many other signs. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the resurrection that has just occurred. So the resurrection of Christ is one of the signs. But that's, that's kind of a, sort of a backhanded way of referring to it. It's never called, and this sign Jesus did. He rose from the dead. But the implications there from this verse we go back to john chapter 2 and the first of jesus signs is turning the water into wine and there are seven signs plus the resurrection in the gospel of john and so that's what how john organizes his material around those eight signs and he concludes by say by saying in verse 31 but these that is contextually these signs Verse 30 said, Jesus did many other signs, but these, these what? These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So the the phrase the Son of God is appositional to Messiah. It's saying something about Messiah, something in addition to Messiah, so you could easily read it and understand it. Uh, by removing the term Messiah and just putting ellipsis there so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, it sounds like John 20:31 is just saying the same thing that 1 John 5, 5 is saying. But we have to look at grammar, that nasty thing called grammar, because grammar is important. He who, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So in that first line, he who overcomes, we have a participle. Now, participle is a verbal noun. It's a verb that sometimes is used, or, uh, excuse me, it's a verbal, verbal adjective. Sometimes it's used like a noun and it's adjectival. Sometimes it's used like a verb and it is just, it's really adverbial, it's modifying a verb. And the, one of the primary ways that you can tell the difference, there's a few exceptions, but the first question you ask when you're translating is, is there a definite, or excuse me, is there an article with the participle? If there's an article there, articles don't go with verbs. They go with nouns. So if there's an article there, that means it's going to be some kind of adjectival phrase. It's a substantive or it's a noun in some way or the other. So when you have the article with nakao, see, that's why I put this in here. It's with an article. So when you have an article with that verb, it's talking about, it's a used as a relative pronoun. He who overcomes. Okay, you have the same thing when it. you get to the second part, participle, believes. It's, it's pastua over here on the right. It has an article. So it's not believing. It is he who believes. Or the believer. It can be either, either way. I've heard some people say when you have... Have it like this, that's just another way of, of saying a believer. And so we've studied overcomer. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what you have here is that the verb for overcoming, nakao, which is from the noun nike, we call it nike, but nike is a present active participle. Now, tense becomes important. Tense isn't a big thing when it's, artic- when it's uh, used substantively, but it does have, a, have, a, have a, a nuance there. It's not aorist, which would be summarizing it, and it would be indicating something that has al- a- already going on. It's present tense. The one who is presently overcoming. Not the one who overcame last week or five years ago, but the one who is overcoming, present tense. Now, that's important because it's showing that this isn't talking about some time in the indefinite past when somebody trusted Christ as Savior. It's talking about an ongoing action now. Who is he who is currently overcoming the world but the one who believes and see in the second participle it's also a present tense meaning the one who now is believing that Jesus is the son of god you have a lot of christians who they believed that when they were 7 or 8 years old and they were saved they became a believe they became a child of god and have eternal life but then, when they get to be 1920 or 30 or whatever, they turn into a skeptic and they're no longer overcoming the world. It's not present tense anymore, it's past tense. They have failed to persevere, not in the Calvinistic sense, but in the sense that they're just not continuing to grow. So, with the fact that both of these are present tense, participles indicates this is talking about what is going on in the life of the believer already at this time, not something that happened in the past. Now, the other thing that's interesting is, or, or the point that I'm making for both, the present tense indicates ongoing action in present time. It's not overcame, he who overcame the world it's not he who believed that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's present tense. Now, that's important because we we have something that looks like a present in John twenty thirty one, but it's in, because you don't know Greek, it's a fake out. In John twenty thirty one, we read, but these signs are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the, the Son of God, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So th- when you look at this, I should have had this one first, the, 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 the uh, by believing here is a present active participle. So you might look at that and go, oh, so we're talking about present time right there. No. And the reason is, That those two participles that we had in 1 John 5 had articles with them and they're functioning as nouns. But here there's no article. So that means it's functioning as an adjective and it's modifying the main verb, which is pistuo here, which is an aorist tense. Now, that's a past tense. Now, in the other verse, both of them were present tenses. But the main verb is an aorist tense, meaning a past tense. And the way it works in Greek is if you have a present tense verb and a present tense participle, the participle, because it's present tense, takes place at the same time as the present tense verb. If it's an aorist tense verb, pastime, the present tense describes the action of the past main verb. Okay, so present tense goes at the same time as the main verb. The main verb controls the time, not the participle. So when it says, these are written that you may believe, that's aorist tense, and that's referring to at some time in the past this person believes, and by believing at that time, he may have life in his name. So. This is describing an event that would occur in someone's past and by believing in the past at the time that he heard the gospel, he receives that life eternal. So that's the difference is John 20, 31 is talking about the means here that you have life and the means took place at the time in the past that you believed that Jesus was the Son of God. So this is important because of this timing principle. And so that throws the timing of the present participle to be coterminous, or at the same time as the participle. There's your graduate course in participles and verbs, okay? But this is, this, you know, God's in the details here. And that's why it's important to look at this. That's why you can't look at John twenty thirty one and say, okay, that tells us that if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you're an overcomer. Because the grammar of the participles and the verbs makes it talking about something different. Okay, now that I've just about put you to sleep, we'll look at the second question. Is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 talking about overcomers, even though the word isn't used? So a lot of times in the scripture, you have passages that are describing something, but it, that word that, it, uh, that it's describing is not necessarily used. So let's just look at this passage. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Okay, only one, but one receives the prize. So you're just using the analogy of a competition of a race. And he says, we run in order to obtain the prize. And everyone who competes, the word there is agonizomai, from which we get our word agony, a struggle. Okay, The, the, the struggle is preparing, training, everything for the competition and then competing. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. It's talking about the athletes on that, the physical athletes on that side of the analogy. The physical athletes do it to get a physical crown, a perishable crown, one that will uh, not last. And the crowns that they, you were made out of foliage. They, they'd use laurel leaves or oak leaves or some other kind of leaves, and they would have them woven together uh, as, as a crown. The word for crown is Stephanos crown, which is a victor's crown. It is not the word Diademos, which is a ruler's crown. But there's, but it's perishable. I mean, they go through all this effort. If you're an athlete working in, and you're uh, competing in the in the Olympic games in Greece. You basically sequester yourself for a year, and you're on a strict diet. You have to get up at a certain time. It's like going to boot camp for a year. You eat eat the same foods. You get up every morning. You train. You work out all year long. And you do all of that, and what do you get? You just get a handful of leaves that are woven together. Now, there are some other things that were given in addition, but... But that's what Paul's analogy is. They do it for a perishable crown, but we're running the race for an imperishable crown, something that will last for eternity. So the analogy is a race. There's a second analogy or a second metaphor, and that's boxing. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight. Here's the boxing analogy. not as one who beats the air. There's a plan, there's a strategy, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Well, this is the verse I think of the king James says i I, um, I beat my body and bring it into submission." And I remember somebody got up teaching a hermeneutics class for comparing Scripture with Scripture and say, okay, in Ephesians 5, men are to love their wives as their own body. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says you're to beat your body into submission. So go and do likewise. You've got to be careful when you're comparing Scripture with Scripture because you can take both of them out of context. So, uh, Paul is talking about uh, using these two different analogies. And in the analogies, what he is saying is that you, you, you run with a purpose. So you, you're running in a race. You're competing. It uh, it's, uses the analogy of fighting. And the idea here is to, it's not that you're, we're competing against one another, But we're competing to do the best we can to glorify God. So, first point here is that there are two metaphors uh, running in a race or boxing. For either the verb nikao was used to describe the winner in secular literature, not in the text. Okay, so it doesn't use nikao here, but uh, the word for victor was used in the ancient world for victory in a battle or in a contest in the epistle it's used in the epistle of aristeas it's used of a good athlete in uh, a work by lucian called timon it's used in the oxyrhynchus papyri number 1759 a lot of these papyrus are just scraps and you just have maybe a sentence or two that you don't have like pages uh, sometimes you have half a page, but that's rare. Uh, so you have, the, it's a letter to an athlete, and then Ignatius, who, and this is important because Ignatius is a church father in the second century. The other examples come from earlier. So what you're showing is across a four or five century period, the word has the same meaning. It doesn't change its meaning. So from Classical Greek all the way through Koine Greek, it is used for someone who is a victor or winner in uh, athlete contests. And that's what's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is it's talking about not being disqualified. So, the last verse there, Paul says, "...I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified." He's not talking about losing his salvation, The analogy is that every believer is competing in the contest. That's the spiritual life. The contest is analogous to our spiritual life. Some will do well, some will not do well, and others will become disqualified because they fail to grow spiritually, and they're not victors. They're not overcomers. So the implications are even though the word is not used, the, the implication is there is that the one who becomes disqualified doesn't lose their salvation. They're the believer at the end of the judgment seat of Christ, whose works have burned up, but he saved yet is through fire. Second point is that in both metaphors, those who competed were the runners and the fighter. The runners and fighters represent Christians in the analogy so that all Christians are competing in these, in these games. And the prize is this Stephanos crown. Now, that becomes important in Revelation because you start off in Revelation 2 and 3 contextually with your seven letters to the seven churches. We'll start talking about that before we're done tonight. And so what happens is you have special awards for those who are overcomers. Some people say they're the same for everyone. In either case, in Revelation 4, you have the 24 elders before the throne, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, and the crowns are Stephanos crowns. That tells you that they've been re- awarded already. They've been, the crowns have been awarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Those are their rewards, and they're being thrown before the, the throne of God. So that, it's a Stephanos crown the crown is not eternal life you you get eternal life eternal life is comparable to the game that you're that we're in it's not comparable to the prize okay because we don't work for our salvation if the if the crown of eternal life was was the result of working or running the game well, then it would be a work salvation. Fourth, not all will receive the crown in the physical competition. Neither will all receive the crown in the spiritual competition. Even though all believers are in the competition, your name's entered into the list and you're in the competition. A lot of believers have no clue. They're never taught this. And fifth, some will fail to persevere. They don't lose their salvation, but they will be disqualified from, so that should be from winning rewards. They'll be disqualified from winning rewards. Okay, so now let's, let's look at what the Bible teaches about the overcomer in Revelation. We'll probably only have time to get through the first one tonight. So here's Ephesus. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. I need a little introduction here so we understand the nature of these report cards. For that's what they are. They are God's report cards on each church. And I pointed out and went through the study in detail that the angel of each church, each church has an angel, that this messenger is not a pastor. It's not the pastor of the church. The word angelos is never, ever, 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 ever used of a pastor. Anywhere in the scripture or in uh, post-apostolic times. It is used only of angels. Every time you see the word angelos in scripture, sometimes it refers to a messenger, but it never refers to a pastor. And that's a very popular view. But what this tells us is every church, and you go back and you look at what what takes place at the last half of the first chapter, every church... Has a lampstand, lamp and every church has an angel assigned to it. The role of the angel is—he's a recording angel. He's like a uh, um, court reporter, kind of a combination court reporter and and the um, um, the sergeant at arms in a courtroom in our in our culture. And he's he's observing and keeping a record of the churches performance and so each one of these is a record of their performance up to this point point. and these uh, seven churches are located in the roman province of asia which is in western what is now western turkey and they are predominant churches at that time and of course the most well known is the church of ephesus but you have the other churches of uh, you have the church of Smyrna and Thyatira and uh, Sardis and Pergamum and uh, Laodicea Philadelphia, and the last the last one is the lukewarm church. That's Laodicea, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The last two. So anyway, these are the churches, and it's a report card. That's the best way to understand this, and the report card. It's interesting, I've been going through a lot of boxes of things that I took out of my parents' house. I have found that I had half these boxes were boxes that my mother took out of her parents' house and she never went through. And there are gobs of pictures, just stacks, pictures going back to the late 1800s. But there's also a lot of people's report cards. And evaluations, there's uh, my, I got, I found report cards from my dad, and I found report cards from my mother, and we won't talk about my report cards. So that's what this is. It's an evaluation, and so let's say you're in school, and you go through your first grading period, here it's six weeks, I think some places it's nine weeks, whatever, doesn't matter, and you are graded according to different subjects. And some subjects you're doing better than other subjects. And so there's going to be a parent-teacher meeting, and the teacher is going to say, well, your child is not doing so well in reading and writing. They're doing better in arithmetic, and they're okay here, but they need to do better. You need to work on that so that at the end of the summer, when they get their grades, they will, they will do much better. That's what these report cards are doing. They're saying you're doing this church is doing well in these areas, not so well in these areas, and if you change some things, then you're going to be able to do better. That's exactly what we see here. So the different parts of these each epistle you have a commission. That means it is addressed to a specific church. So in the case of the first one, In Revelation 2, 1, uh, what we see is that this is addressed to the church of Ephesus, to the angel. He's the record keeper, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? And then the rest of the verse says, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That imagery comes out of chapter 1. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And so then it begins with the evaluation. I know your works. Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. So you're getting you're getting a pluses. And when I was a kid, there was a, a side of the report card that listed various character qualities, uh, such as uh, self-discipline and cooperation and able to sit still, things like that. And that's like this. You get check, you get a minus, a check, or a plus. So... Jesus is giving them this positive. You, you've done this and you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You get pluses in all those categories. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. You get pluses in everything. Nevertheless, uh-oh, we delivered the good news, now the bad news. Nevertheless, I have against you that you have left your first love. So, your intimacy, love, and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ gets a minus. Okay, the other categories look real good, but here it's a minus. And then he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. What's he talking about when he says that? Remember how you were when you were getting a plus for your love, intimacy, fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, what every teacher says to the parents, if they change, repent. If your son or daughter will change the way they're studying and working, they can pull their grade up. And that's what this is saying. Remember, uh, he says, uh, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. In other words, change and do the first works. What did he say? He said, you've left your first love. The first works relate back to first love. Go back to your first love or else. Uh-oh. In other words, start studying, and you can pull your grade up by the end of the, of the, of the semester. But if you don't, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you Repent. Now, that's not talking about repenting from sin. Uh, in, in some of these, that's what, what it involves. is changing. You're too involved with the world. And all of these, you can say, they just succumbed to worldliness. But this you have, so now he's going to add another category that's positive. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what I'm pointing out here, reading through that, I don't want to get into all the details of what each of these means. You have the commission that it's addressed to a specific church. There are, uh, there's a character reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks in the midst of seven golden lampstands. Jesus is evaluating the churches. When we get to the church of Smyrna, it says, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. That's talking about Jesus. That's mentioned at the, in chapter 1. Uh, verse uh, 12, you get into the third church, Pergamum. These things says, he who has the sharp sword, uh, two-edged sword. So you get the point that there is a character reference for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's a commendation where they're praised for the things they're doing right, and they're growing spiritually. Two of them have nothing said of a positive nature. But there's still a church that biblically that means there they are, are a, a group of believers meeting in a local church, but they have become apostate. But it's not questioning their salvation. That's a lordship view. They the, the lordship people think that that means they're not they're not saved. Then there's a condemnation and that's a warning about a spiritual flaw in the congregation. I mean and in verse verse 4 it's you have left your first love. And then there's a correction, repent. It's a prescription to recovery. It is repent. And then there is this call to this church to to do that. He who has an ear let him hear. Now, see, remember in the Bible If you say to somebody, listen to me, you don't mean just have your uh, ears stimulated. You mean, do what I say. Every time you see this in Scripture, hearing isn't just listening. It is listening and obeying. So when Jesus speaks, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him do what I'm saying. And then he says, to him who overcomes. Contextually, what's he overcoming? Well, overcoming the problem, which is that you've left your first love. So there's a correction. Six, there's a call to listen and apply. uh, You know, listen to what the Spirit says. And a challenge to do something. And then there's the promise of the uh, award. So in Revelation 2.7 we read, He who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so this is what god the holy spirit is saying through the this uh, report card and it's addressed to the overcomer not to the mature believer who's already who is overcoming but to the one who needs to overcome and what the promise is to those who overcome I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, sounds pretty much like he's talking about just salvation, doesn't it? Eat from the tree of life, doesn't that just mean eternal life? And people take it that way. That's, that, that's the simple surface meaning without digging too much into other parts of the text. And it says that this tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. So we have to see what what that's all about. So the overcomer, there's our word. We're used to it now. Uh, Nikao, the one who has victory, the one who has success, the one who wins the race. In the second letter, this will be a challenge. When we get there, we have to take some time to understand this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So he's going to be, have um, eat from the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. He's not going to be hurt by the second death. In the third uh, epistle to Pergamum, he says to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So something special there. This is very Contextual. And what archaeologists have discovered is that each of these statements have something to do with what they've discovered about something distinctive about that particular location. In uh, the, fourth, the fourth letter, which is the church in Thyatira, uh, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. Now, that's a really important phrase because that tells you that overcoming isn't just trusting in Christ. Because if overcoming was just trusting in Christ, then why is he adding works? What's important here is the overcomer is one who is obedient and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. That comes out of Psalm 2-7. That when the Messiah comes, he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. So this indicates the overcomer will rule and reign with Christ. And they shall be dashed to pieces, that is, those who are in opposition to the rule of the Messiah will be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. That's another award. Revelation 3.5, the overcomer shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And that's, and we'll get into the details on all of these. And again, it's, it, you get two privileges, these various privileges. It's, it's dressed in white garments. Your name will be, and certainly will be highlighted in the book of life. And Jesus says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's not just arriving in heaven, this is a special recognition. Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. So he gets a new nickname that relates to what he's done. And Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So you have, we have seven distinctive statements talking about seven different privileges that are granted to the one who overcomes. two seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the overcomer I will give to eat from the tree of life. Well, let's tackle that first. What does this refer to? The tree of life. Well, it's only used... If you, I did a search on just that phrase. There's something similar in Ezekiel, but it doesn't use the precise phrase. The tree of life is used, first of all, it's, u- it's mentioned ten times in the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 2.9, 322 and 324. So in the creation and fall narrative, it's used. Genesis 2.9 nine Uh, God has created this uh, beautiful garden in Eden where he places the the man and the woman. And in the midst of the garden are two trees, the tree of life uh, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the tree of life. 322 tells us something new that after they sinned, the Lord said, well, we're going to have to remove him from the garden unless he... Uh, puts out his hand and takes also of the tree of life and eats and lives forever. So it has something to do with uh, eating and living and probably quality of life because there's no physical death prior to the fall. So they they had the tree of life, but they were going to live forever. So this tree of life has something, it seems, That may be in addition to simply not physically dying. In Genesis 3.24, this guard is placed up so they can't, uh, the cherub army is placed out there so they can't have access to the tree of life. In Proverbs 3.18, 11.30, 13.12, and 15.4, the phrase tree of life is used. It doesn't seem that tree of life in these passages has anything to do with the length of life. First example, 3.18. Actually, this passage starts about four or five verses earlier, and it is talking about the value of wisdom. That the one who does this or the one who does that is wise. And what is important about wisdom That's the she. She refers to the chokhmah, the wisdom. She is a tree of life. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happier all who retain her. So here it's talking about some blessing, some enrichment in life that comes from those who have taken hold of wisdom. There's a quality of life that is in addition to just the length of life. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. So you have some people who live righteously, experiential righteously. They have a good, moral, ethical life. They enrich those around them. They are not corrupt. They are not criminals. They are not deceitful. They are not lazy. They are not trying to uh, get one over on somebody. Uh, they're someone you can trust. They have integrity. They are a pillar of the community. And so uh, they enrich the quality of life of those around them. And um, in addition, he who wins souls is wise. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We all know what that's like. We hope something. We have a dream about something. We hope we can bring this about. And when it doesn't come to fruition, we're depressed, we're discouraged, we feel defeated. But when the desire comes, oh, now it's realized. It's a tree of life. It brings blessing in our life, it, enrichment to our lives. And then the fourth example is Proverbs 15, four, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. It brings blessing and enrichment to those around us. Nobody likes being around somebody who complains all the time or somebody who's always gossiping or somebody who is running people down. Uh, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So it's not talking about something that is uh, where the tree of life is bringing justification or eternal life. It is talking about a quality of life. And then we come to the third use, which is in Revelation uh, 22, two. Revelation 22:2. Revelation 22:2, we read that in the New Jerusalem, in the future, in the New Heavens and New Earth, in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's a difficult passage to interpret. It shouldn't be healing of the nations because that implies they're sick. It should be translated the health of the nations. It emphasizes a quality of life. Okay? So, in other words, it has to do with this extra enrichment of life that is indicated by its usage in Proverbs. Then we look at a couple of other passages that relate to this in Revelation 22, 14. In fact, I want you to turn there so this makes a little more sense because we're going to have to look at several verses here. And there's a time shift that takes place in the middle of Revelation 22. Revelation 22 starts off looking at this new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem, And John is seeing this revealed to him, so the revelation is still continuing. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. So this river of life is proceeding from the throne of God, and in the middle of the street you have on either side of the river the tree of life. And we're further told, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. Interesting. There's darkness in Revelation, in Genesis 1-2. There's no darkness in the new heavens and new earth. There's no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, now, who's the he? This is the angel that is showing this to him. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must take shortly place. And then this is uh, Jesus talking. And. He says. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So what's happened is, up through verse 5, you're still looking at the the vision, the revelation to John. And now, uh, the angel who's showing this to him, speaking to him, we're back in real time, 95 AD. The angel has completed the revelation, and now there is an application. And Jesus is coming quickly. So John says, I saw and heard these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said, see, you do not do that. In other words, don't worship me. I'm an angel. I'm a creature. Um, Goes on. I said to me, don't seal up the words of the book, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then verse 12. We shift and it's Jesus talking. And behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Notice. Reward and work, not grace and freely given. Okay, and then we read, he says, On the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Blessed are those who do his commandments. This is verse 14, which I have on the screen now. Blessed are those who do his commandments. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. If the tree of life equals eternal life and salvation, then in this verse, it is the consequence of doing God's commandments. That's works. And that would make sense when connected to 2.7, but we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. Blessed are those who do his commandments. That's in the majority text and the Textus Receptus. Which is interesting here, just from a textual critical point, the critical text says, Wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes. But the interesting thing is, about 90 plus percent of the time in Revelation, unlike other books of the New Testament, The majority text agrees with the critical text about 90% of the time. So for those to diverge here is significant. And the majority text is, I would take it as being correct here. That it means those who do his commandments. Uh, That they may have the right to the tree of life. So the right to the tree of life is to those who do his commandments. Verse, in contrast... To salvation, which is described in verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and and the bride is the church. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. That's free gift of eternal life right there. But that's in contrast to 22.14, which says that it's based on doing his commandments. So what do we learn about this in John's writings? John 14.15 and 21, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14.21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. We're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about that which comes after salvation. John 15.10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. What if I said abide means fellowship? It has to do with that intimacy with the Lord, walking by the Spirit. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my If you don't keep my commandments, you're going to be out of fellowship, and uh, you're not going to have this intimacy with me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Then we go to John, 1 John. It says the same thing. Now, by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Remember, knowing him isn't the same as being saved. Knowing him has to do with advanced knowledge. Jesus said to Philip, how long have you been with me and you don't know me? See, it has to do with spiritual growth after salvation. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. See, it doesn't say he's an unbeliever and he's going to the lake of fire. It says he's out of fellowship. He is a liar and the truth is not in him. He is not. He does not know God. First John three twenty two. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments so that's our prayer life is directly related to keeping his commandments, which means we're abiding with him. See if we're not abiding with him, he regards iniquity in his heart, the Lord will not hear him. That's Psalms. First John 3:23 and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another. Now you don't have to do both of those to be saved. Believing on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, gets you eternal life. Loving one another is spiritual growth. So he's combining the two there, justification and sanctification. 1 John three twenty four. Now he who keeps my commandments abides in him and he in him. That's walking by the spirit. But when we sin, we're no longer abiding. 1 John four twenty one. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So, if you don't love your brother, you don't love your neighbor, doesn't mean you're not saved. It's that you're not being, you're not growing, you're not walking by the Spirit. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Keeping his commandments is not legalism, it's how you walk by the Spirit. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So from all this, we learn that salvation is free. Whoever desires, let him take of the water freely. But rewards, I mean, um, Jesus is going to come and give rewards to each one according to his work. That's in addition to what we get freely. We know from Scripture that salvation is free, but rewards are earned. Colossians 2, 3, Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the Lord uh, the reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Reward is on the basis of service to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not doing stuff around the church. That's serving the Lord in our lives. So, Revelation 22.14 says that uh, those who do his commandments... Have the right to the tree of life. They've been growing and maturing as believers. Revelation 2 7 says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. It's an additional blessing on top of salvation. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So we're going to get into that. I want to skip to the end. We'll come back and wrap this up. But I've got a quote at the end that I want to get to first, and then we'll wrap up. Come back to this other. And this is, where did it go? I've got the quote right here. There it is. Okay. This is a great quote I found. Donald Gray Barnhouse, for those of you who do not remember him, Donald Gray Barnhouse died in 1960. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was something somewhat of a Calvinist like Lewis Ferry Chafer and others who founded Dallas Seminary. He was uh, the people loved to listen to him. He was on the radio. He was the most listened to radio preacher in the country during his time from in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. If you know any pastors that were around during that time, they listened to Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was fabulous. He was a great theologian and orator. He wrote one of the best books, except for mine, on spiritual warfare, and uh, a number of other books. He wrote a commentary on Revelation in which he makes this statement. See, the reason I say all of that is because in today's world we, we and in our milieu, we have people who somehow think, well, this division over overcomers or every believer in overcomers or not is something that is related to, you know, some issues in the free grace movement or dispensation. Now, Barnhouse was a dispensationalist. Uh, Barnhouse was, um, a, 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 I would call him a moderate, strong, a strongly moderate Calvinist. And this is Barnhouse. He's not influenced by because I read something today, and they're accusing, uh, you know, Zane Hodges and Bob Wilkin, and listed a half a dozen people in the Free Grace camp, and as if this originated out of the Free Grace movement. And and it didn't. This is Barnhouse writing back in the 40s. Some have said that eating from the tree of life was the equivalent of receiving eternal life. But this is most evidently a false interpretation. Eternal life is the prerequisite for membership in the true church. So you come to Ephesians, the people that he's talking to are all believers. Why would he be promising them in addition salvation? He's not talking to unbelievers. Eternal life is the prerequisite for membership in the true church. Eating of the tree of life is a reward that shall be given to the overcomer in addition, those are my italics, in addition to his salvation. He receives over and above his entrance into eternal life, a place in the heavens in the midst of the paradise of God. Great statement. Just because Donald Gray Barnhouse said it doesn't make it true. I'm pointing it out because I'm saying that this is not some new position that came up in the last 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 years. It's been around a long time. I just haven't gone back to trace its roots, but I understand it has deep roots going back at least two or 300 years. And I think this is important for understanding the doctrine of rewards and what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. So we'll come back, look at what uh, that verse says about the paradise of God and wrap up a couple of other things. But I wanted to close with that particular quote. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded that our salvation is based on grace. But there are incentive clauses in the scripture that those who obey you, walk with you, grow to maturity, that for that there are additional awards and rewards, crowns, and that there will be distinctions. But all will be happy. All will have great joy. All will have uh, resurrection bodies. All will have eternal life. But there are going to be some distinctions, capacities that come as a result of what we do now. And so, Father, we pray that we might press on we're encouraged that some people that were pretty much failures in a lot of their lives made it to Hebrews 11, so we know that your judgment is going to be based on grace and that you will do so much for us that we, we, it will be above anything that we ask or think according to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And we thank you for this. And we pray that we will be encouraged and motivated to serve you and walk with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.